Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, so today I'm going to be picking up uh, on page, uh, I guess, 716 of Neil Stevenson's of Broke Cycle, specifically the first volume, Quicksilver, which is the third book in this volume uh, called Odalisque. So uh, if you're just joining us, you might want to go back and listen to my previous episodes on the Baroque cycle. I'll be reading through the whole thing um, in small chunks, giving you my read through and my, my commentary and my thoughts on the, the book, on the books, the eight books. Um, but anyways, we pick up here. Uh, uh, well, we just uh, finished a scene where where Eliza and Bob Shafto meet up in the Netherlands at the was it the Schwenigen uh, the beach, uh, and then, uh, hang out at Huygens house. It's a nice little scene where we see Huygens being a bit of a, a bit, he's open, but he's a bit grumpy at, at kind of, uh, Eliza's, uh, use of his house without, as a, you know, for a sex romp, uh, without his permission. Um, so we kind of, uh, moving on in the story, we, we shift to I think it's around the same period of time. I want to say it's September 1686. Um, no, it's a year whole whole year later. Um, the previous scene was in six, the middle of 1685. So we are uh, in a scene that's done as a play. Um, this is not the first time Neil Stevenson's done this in this book, um, but uh, it, it's a bit of an odd scene because it doesn't seem fully realistic. It seems it really is more like a play um, where people come in and out at awkward times and things like that. But the, the main scene in, involves like uh, Daniel Waterhouse and Sir Richard Apthorpe. So they're talking about banking um, and Roger Comstock is there as well. So there's a little bit about uh, Royal Society business and some things involving banking. So what sets out is really uh, we've learned that since the the fall of the House of Ham way back uh, you know in the first volume Quicksilver, you know if just to review what happened there, uh, Daniel Waterhouse's brother-in-law was a banker, and he was lending his deposits to the Crown. This is how they did it in those days. Goldsmiths would take in gold, store them, then give out certificates that could be traded as paper money, uh, and then take a borrow money again, you know, borrow money from those deposits, you know, expecting, you know, most of that to be paid back. And then, you know, people didn't want their deposits anyways. They wanted the paper money. So as long as no one went to actually collect the gold, they were fine. But then Charles II, after the third, it was the third Anglo Dutch war, stopped paying those debts, just renounced the debts. Then all these banks collapsed. It wasn't just the house of ham. It was all of the, the banks in the area. And this is all going to lead really to the creation of the bank of England, which is discussed uh, more in the next volume. Uh, and I think especially in the third, vo- th- the third volume, the final books of the series, but we see the roots of it here as Apthorpe is talking about the, you know, the establishment of a, of a new bank call he calling it a bank not just a goldsmith shop so we're seeing the development of these modern institutions of 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 capitalism and they they, t- they talk to each other in these kind of it's because it is set up as a play they refer to each other with these kind of classical with classical imagery like mercury's temple being the bank uh daniel waterhouse is referred to as pluto the god of the underworld um 
and things like that. Now, so a Jew comes wanting to buy commodities, right? So, and this brings up another issue with not banking so much, but, but finance and futures markets and commodities markets, how there seem to be different prices for commodities in Amsterdam and in London, significantly different prices, which allowed people to manipulate the, the kind of the futures market for commodities. This is something that's going to run through the entire book too. We've already seen kind of Eliza playing with futures markets in her sabotaging of the the the, the VOC stock to destroy the this lead merchants, uh, you know, finances. So uh, it's it's just kind of we're still getting the sense that these institutions are rather undeveloped. They aren't fully integrated into a world system yet, and still. Commodities can be quite cheaper. So one issue was if there's going to be a war, like a, in this case, another war breaking out between the, the Dutch and the French, and you want to, you know, buy commodities for, um, you know, to sell to the people fighting the war, the governments, right? Got gunpowder, for instance, or saltpeter or something like that. You know, the price matters but so does the transportation cost right so the jew is there to buy commodities in london to sell to the english government so you wouldn't have the shipping costs associated with it so a lot of this is a lot of this financial stuff is going going on um we also have a discussion here mostly between the marquis of ravenscar and roger comstock about the publication of the Principia Mathematica. So you actually have, I think it's the first volume or two of the Principia Mathematica ready to go to the print shop. So Newton has finally published this this text. Um, we saw in the previous chapter how Leibniz started publishing his calculus. So the fact that these two things get published around the same time feeds into the calculus dispute as well, of course. Um, it's presented as this huge book, like I think... Is it Apthorpe or or Roger describes it? Is this like a is this a brick for a building for a cathedral or is it a is it a book? All right, then you have this weird scene where like Jack Ketch comes in and they burn. A, so you have to actually another book in this scene. The first book being Principia Mathematica, and the second is an anti, essentially an anti-Catholic book, um, published in England. Uh, announcing the crimes of Louis the 14th against the, the Protestants in Savoy referred to in an earlier chapter um, actually it was in one of Eliza's letters to Leibniz she talks about this word gets out about this kind of pogrom against the Huguenots and since at this time James II is king he's being chummy with the Catholics and with uh, the French king uh, so they order this book burned and they actually execute it using Jack Ketch to execute a book you know, instead of the author, because that's what they have, they burn the book. Um, so basically, um, that's there. And, th and then we have like, you know, people like Daniel Waterhouse in this context thinking about maybe we need to leave. So Daniel Waterhouse in this part of the book is still believing that the in King of England, James II, is going to be kind to dissenters because he himself is sort of a dissenter and he's close to the king although we never really see too many scenes with them together i think the last time we saw a scene was way back in the first volume when he wanted to ask daniel about cures for syphilis or something really on the dl because daniel waterhouse was a little member at the royal society at the time now he's like the president of the royal society 
But still, these people are thinking maybe we need to get out to Massachusetts a little bit. And other Puritans are thinking this way. So the beginning of repressions become significant. Uh, repressions against Protestants uh, become more significant. Not really Anglicans so much, but really dissenters, people who aren't followers of the established um, religion. So um, a little bit more review here uh, on the difference between Newton and Leibniz's point of view, which of course is kind of a key feature of this book. In fact, I have the audiobook version, read extremely well by, uh, what's the guy's name, Simon Preble. But uh, but each each book has a short introduction. Each of, like, of the eight books has a short introduction by by Neil Stevenson. And he, he for Odalisk, he doesn't talk so much about Eliza's story. He really talks about Newton and Leibniz. That seems to be his focus here. Um, and it's, again... The contrast is highlighted here. Waterhouse explains. He's becoming really the explainer. Uh, that seems to become his, his role as a natural philosopher. If he's not going to be as great as Newton and Leibniz, he can at least translate that stuff for the general populace so they can kind of follow the discourse of natural philosophy. He writes, Leibniz has been trying to make sense of Descartes' dynamics for years and finally given up. Descartes was wrong. His theory of dynamics is beautiful in that it's purely geometrical and mathematical. But when you compare that theory to the world as it really is, it proves an unmitigated disaster. The whole notion of vortices does not work. There's no doubt that the inverse square law exists and governs the motions of all heavenly bodies along conic sections, but it has nothing to do with the vortices or the celestial ether or any of that nonsense, end quote. So the question comes down to what is the interaction between these bodies, right? What's actually the force, right? That's, you know, can you have instantaneous motion across distance? Um, so Isaac says it's God, you know, that God just intervenes at every moment following his kind of plan. Um, and Leibniz doesn't really have an answer yet, but he's coming up with one. Um, and so let quote, to quote Waterhouse again, Leibniz says it has to be some sort of interaction among particles too tiny to be seen. And then Ravenscar asks us, atoms? And Waterhouse says, atoms, to make a long more story short and leave out all the good bits, could not move and change fast enough. Instead, Leibniz speaks of monads, which are more fundamental than atoms, end quote. And then he says, I really can't explain this that well yet. And, and of course, this is part of the Leibnizian scheme to explain this. You know, this is all before general relativity has, a, has a, you know, ex, an explanation for, for gravity. Um, so yeah, that's the section. It's it's all set up at this play. It's about ten pages. It's not. Um, it's it's pretty fun, um, especially the scene of this this book burning and the realization things are getting a little stressed out for dissenters. All right, moving ahead, we jump six months later to Versailles in sixteen eighty seven, March sixteen eighty seven, and we have another Eliza letter to uh, Devoe where mostly she talks about business things with him, a little bit more on the everyday life in Versailles, you know, which is something DeVoe is somewhat interested in because he is a diplomat in Amsterdam and needs news from, from Versailles. A little bit about Edouard de Jex, who kind of emerges as a, as a major villain in the story. Um, but the real interesting thing, and again, this is kind of for um, the audience of William of Orange is the status of like VOC stock and the investment of, of French aristocrats in the East Indi Dutch East India Company or other Dutch financial interests, which Eliza is essentially becoming the conduit for. 
So that's kind of becomes her real value in the court of Versailles. And one of the reasons she sort of becomes not untouchable, really, but she does become someone whose loss would be missed by people in the Versailles court. The way she explains this is, quote, but French nobles will not be seen doing business with Dutch heretics and Spanish Jews. So I'm a sort of figurehead, like the pretty mermaid at the bow of a ship that's laden with other people's treasures and manned by swarthy corsairs, which is her similitude uh, for this. Um, then we have this, with, then we have another uh, uh, letter to DeVoe dated a few months later, June 1687, where she basically talks, she scolds DeVoe for spreading rumors about her as being a bit of a, of a bit promiscuous in the court. It's not quite sure to me why DeVoe is doing this or she's just filling up space in her letters. Um, but she talks about a costume ball that she went to. So we got yet another costume ball, which I, I still think it's really interesting that you have the costume ball that, of course, Jack Shafto crashed at the end of King of the Vagabonds. But in that same book, you have another costume ball of the, the Witch's Sabbath. So, um, And then costuming and putting on different roles is going to be a major theme, I think, in, um, in Bonanza, too, where you have this Jack Shafto traveling around the world on this kind of uh, high adventure, treasure robbing, magic gold stuff going on. But a lot. But anyways, just dressing up. A lot of that has to do with Jack dressing up as a janissary. So anyways, back to this letter. This The card of this letter is about Eliza essentially manipulating VOC stock through rumors. We've already seen examples of how rumors and news of war or whatever can affect stocks and how Eliza is able to take advantage of it. The question is, does an event have to be real for it to affect stocks? And Eliza's answer correctly is, is no. If people believe something, and, and that will affect the buying and selling of shares, and and it may not matter if the news is really there, especially in when news travels pretty slow, slower than rumors, it seems. So Eliza hatches this plan to basically can put it out there and and get the French, like Louis the Fourteenth, and he's at this costume party, you know, dressed up, but you know who he is to kind of make naval movements to, to make this look plausible, basically that Batavia in the Dutch East Indies falls, right? And if this happened to the French, and if rumors of this spread, this people will sell their VOC stock, right? And this would then be an opportunity for for these French aristocrats to, sell, to again, sell short uh, stock, right? So you the way that works is you, of course, you borrow um stocks you borrow stocks and you buy you borrow you know you borrow stocks and then you sell them at a high rate and then there's some you know then the stock falls right just because everyone's selling but with this news it's drop even farther then you pay back that initial loan with uh stocks of lower value right in the meantime you become really really wealthy um so that's the plan the way she says it here is um, speaking for myself, I spent all the time since talking, since talking to French nobles who are desperate to know what the right position is. I've lost track of the number of times I've had to explain the concept of selling short, and that when VOC stock falls, it tends to bring about a rise in commodity prices as capital flies from one to the other. So that's another benefit, right? If commodity prices go up, that's great for merchants who sell commodities or people investing in those commodities, especially if they have to sell them to people who actually need it. Right. If you've there's a wonderful book that does explains this better than I could in the more modern era. 
it's uh, Nature's Metropolis by uh, what's his name? Uh, what I forget his name. The environmental historian Cronin is his name. It's a history of Chicago, but he's got a whole chapter about the grain commodity markets and things. And it wasn't so much about buying grain; it's about having it when someone who needed to buy it needed to buy it, right? And the the danger was that that you that the grain would eventually be delivered to your house or something. But most of these people in the futures market would play around with it to bounce it around until they had the right price and everyone's making a piece along the way. So that's in the background of this too, right? So basically the French here crash the VOC markets because of a, a rumor about the, about the fall of Batavia. Later, she describes this all to Leibniz in a letter. Uh, well, at least we get segments of a, of a letter. Um, by this point in the story, I think... Stevenson thinks we understand the cipher, so he just mostly gives us the italics text, which is the ciphered text, um, where she talks about that. She also talks about the Earl Lobnor and the, the Bob Shafto stuff, because remember, uh, Bob Shafto wants Eliza to liberate uh, his lover from the from the Earl of Upnor, who has enslaved her. Uh, or anyways, the next scene is we flip to the winter of 87, which is a pretty complicated scene uh, or set of scenes in The Hague um, near Schwenigen, where Huygens is. So it's kind of like a meeting of Huygens and, and Daniel Waterhouse is there and Eliza is there. William of Orange shows up in, in this scene as well. So um, it's, it's our chance for Daniel Waterhouse to meet Eliza. I think that's key because she is going to seduce him off screen it happens but it's talked about later on and Dan it really affects daniel and they're going to have this lifelong friendship that's uh kind of how eliza does things um is she uses sex to make connections between people um not with leibniz though it seems but although i don't know maybe it's maybe that's off screen too we just don't get Leibniz's kind of point of view very often. We get him talking through letters and things and through conversations, but we don't always get his point of view. So maybe, maybe there's a Leibniz Eliza scene that will be in the, the, the TV adaptation of this series. Hopefully. Now there's a few important things here. One being that Daniel seems to have become a bit of a, He's kind of replaced his idea of the apocalypse, which he inherited from Drake, his father, and from kind of his Puritan tradition, to a believer in revolution. Um, and here he means revolution in the political sense. We think of the glorious revolution, right? Um, it seems that's being used in a new way at this, this point. I'm not sure when the term revolution as a political term first emerged. Of course, Newton uses it as a term for referring to the motion of planets. Um, heavenly bodies and things revolve but you know daniel waterhouse starts saying maybe we can start using this as a as a political term he right here this is what he says uh quote i do not think to see what we can make of england now if we only try i was brought up to believe that an apocalypse was coming i've not believed that for many years but the people who believe in the apocalypse are my people and their way of thinking is my way I've only just come around to a new way of looking at this, a new viewpoint as Leibniz would have it, namely that there is something to the idea of an apocalypse, a sudden changing of all, an overthrow of the old ways, and that Drake and the others merely got the particulars wrong. They fixed on a date certain, in a, in a word idealized, or idolatized, idolatized, 
If idolatry is to mistake the symbol of a thing symbolized, then what is it that they did with that symbol that they set down in the book of Revelations? Revelation. Drake and the others were like a flock of birds who all sense that something is nigh and take flight as one, a majestic sight and a miracle of creation. But they were confused and flew into a trap and the revolution came to naught. Does this mean that they were mistaken to have spread their wings at all? No, their sense did not deceive them. Their higher minds did. Should we spurn them forever because they erred? Is their legacy to be laughed at only? On the contrary, I would say that we bring about, might bring about this apocalypse now with a little effort. Not precisely the one we fancied, but the same or better in its effects. Now, he's talking about this to William Penn. And William Penn just sort of says, yeah, you're better off going to Massachusetts, right? And of course, he's famous for the founder of Pennsylvania, which is a place famous for being a bastion of religious freedom in the New World. Um, but again, the question, do we fight in, in England for the society we want, you know, struggle against James II, talk about a political revolution, or do we just flee off to, to the Americas? So that's kind of one important thing going on in this section of the book. The other, I guess, would be the introduction of Faccio. Um, Faccio is going to be a, a, another natural philosopher character uh, who becomes important in the book. He's, he becomes sort of associated with the Newton group, but he seems to be very uh, a pretty open-minded character in terms of his feelings about alchemy and things like that. He's kind of a middle ground maybe between some different perspectives, Daniel and Leibniz and Newton. He sort of sits in the middle and is able to navigate them. He also has associations with Eliza, of course. Um, so he's a, he's a little more of a crafty. Uh, he keeps his hands more close to his chest, it seems. Um, but they also, again, talk about the action from a distance problem in the, in the Newtonian system as described in Principia Mathematica. I guess the third really important thing in this scene is the is the whole plot to capture the w William of Orange. Now, I don't know enough about William of Orange to know if this is a real event or just something that's Neil Stevenson sort of constructed for his uh, for a story. Um, you know, of course he he does this sort of invasion of of England, which leads to the Glorious Revolution and the overthrow of. Of James II. Again, we, we don't see this stuff on stage. It does take place in this book towards the end. We see it from Daniel's point of view as he's as he's in London at the time. But there is this scene where Faccio and Eliza get this rumors that there's this plot by the French. I think it's Darcachon again, the, the, the naval captain, the naval admiral for the French, fictionalized, of course. You know, but he's got this plan to capture William of Orange. And they find out about it, and they, they intervene. So there's this kind of action scene where Eliza takes rides a horse bareback uh, using her the knowledge she picked up from from Jack about this. She's got this horse named Vla, VLA Vile. Um, and they, they essentially warn... Um, William of Orange is a chapter that Daniel or Neil Stevenson calls defending the defender, uh, referring to the defense of, of William of Orange. Now, one reason this is done is it gives us a chance for, for William of Orange and Eliza to sort of debrief again 
they had met before, but once again they're meeting. And it sets up the War of the League of Augsburg, or the Nine Years' War, which starts out as the French basically invading the Rhineland and the Netherlands in order to you know, secure that territory and knock out the Netherlands. It becomes a much more global war after the Glorious Revolution because then England enters on the side of the of the of, of, of the Dutch, right? And this is all sort of info dumped for us by William. He says, um, What you've just witnessed here, Liza, is the spark that makes the pan, the fire is the musket that ejects the ball that fells the king. If you know nothing else today, fix that idea clear in your mind. But I have no choice but to make Britain mine. But I shall require troops, and I dare not pull that many of them from my southern marches while Louis menaces me there. But if, as I expect, Louis decides to enlarge his realms at the expense of the Germans, he'll draw off his forces in his Dutch flank and free me to send mine across the North Sea. And then Eliza says, what does it have to do with Lizoletta? And he explains, Lizoletta is the granddaughter of the Winter Queen, who, some say, sparked the Thirty Years' War by accepting the crown of Bohemia. At any rate, the said queen spent most of those Thirty Years just yonder in the Hague. My people sheltered her for Bohemia was by then a shambles, and the Platinate, which was rightfully hers, had fallen to the Papists in the sp as a spoil of that war. But when the Peace of Westphalia was finally signed some 40 years ago, the Palatinate was returned to that family. The Winter Queen's eldest son, Charles Louis, became Elector Palatinate. Various of his siblings, including Sophie, moved there and set up housekeeping in Heidelberg Castle. Lizaletta is the daughter of that same Charles Louis and grew up in that household. Charles Louis died a few years ago and passed the crown to the brother of Lizaletta, who was demented. He died not long ago conducting a mock battle in one of the Rhine castles. Now the succession is in dispute. So, and this is what leads King Louis, through his connection to Lizaletta through a marriage, to basically try to put Lizaletta on the throne of the Plantinate, securing that kind of as a, as a French satellite state or whatever, right? But all this is just a way to say that war, although the Dutch would be at war with the French, would, it would give the Dutch and William the chance to do his launches invasion of England, spark the glorious revolution and all that and and we're pretty much there in terms of the story itself uh the next chapter is early 1688 uh where we have a letter from eliza to to leibniz where she basically reports on the this the sophie lizoletta stuff and the opinions of the french in the court about a, a kind of a dutch takeover of of, of london so i think that more or less does no, it doesn't quite uh, finish us off with Eliza, but more or less, uh, you know, what's really going to dominate the rest of the book for Eliza is this adventure she has in the Rhineland, you know, kind of as a spy of William the Orange. And it's all going to set up the next book with her relationship with the French master cartographer, uh, Rosignol, um, and her affair with uh, Etienne Dacachon and her kid which you know the parentage is a little ambiguous um, of that that kid because of you know the the various relationships she's going to have during that adventure but it's really wonderfully done i think there's a kind of a revelation at the end of the book i'll talk about it in the next episode because that's really where most of this takes place but more or less what this is setting up is eliza going to continue to be a spy for william of orange in a context of what's going to be a much broader broader war and this is going to have to manage to live with live in france as more or less a known spy 
Um, and what is that, what's that going to mean for her? But anyways, where we pick up with is in the Star Chamber um, in, in April 1688. Uh, so it's, we're back with Daniel. And uh, this is kind of a fun little scene. The Star Chamber was an old like uh, thing during the like a hundred years earlier. It was used basically a, a kangaroo court for dissenters and, and people who the king wanted to get rid of, right? Um, and he gets he's captured. He wakes up and he's in in irons. He's got this thing around his neck, this iron thing around his neck, and it's it's Jeffries is holding this kind of mock court for him in the star chamber and jeffries so again we're getting this story that the repression within england you know in respect to puritans dissenters free thinkers is growing um, as the threat to james ii is growing right this is before the glorious revolution but but it's right around the corner right it's pretty close to us and so it's jeffries and a few other of his of his lackeys are hanging out there. And remember, Jeffries has already kind of proven himself to be pretty brutal in the bloody assizes, the crushing of the Monmouth Rebellion. He's become a real strict loyalist of James II. Um, now, mostly what Jeffries lectures Daniel about in this section of the book is his concept of revolution, this politicizing of the concept of revolution. And he he scolds him, he even says, I went to Newton, asked him, what does revolution mean? He didn't say anything about politics. So you must obviously be wrong to use the term revolution in this way. And Daniel, to his credit, even though he thinks he might be executed at this point, does kind of stand up for himself and his opinions, saying, I didn't mean it necessarily has to be a revolutionary thing. And Jeffries, of course, doesn't care. He's, a, he's being a loyalist. But and then Daniel says, well, this is a kangaroo court. It's, it's not legal anymore. It has no standing. Um, and Jeffries says, you know, you're right. Actually, we're just here to kind of torment you and make you feel bad. And he lays into Daniel kind of all his ills, beginning with the first time Jeffries and Daniel met, like one of the first chapters of the book, when Daniel saw the Earl of Upnor, a young man, a college student at the time, killing a Puritan. And they, it's like Jeffries and Roger Comstock basically coerce him into being quiet about that. And Jeffries never forgot this act of what he takes to be cowardice on um, by Daniel, and he humiliates him, um, gives him a long speech about this, and then they dump him outside of the of the star chamber. He has to escape the collar on his own, and he's kind of wandering his way back to back to, uh, back home. So that's a, a nice scare for for Daniel. He he knows he's got to be more careful in terms of politics. Um, we get a, this is where we get the flashback, or at least it suggested that uh, Eliza seduced Daniel at one point. He can't get her out of her mind. Um, Eliza actually had come to London earlier. That's all off screen. Um, again, I get the feeling that this book is is a little rushed, even though it's only covering four years. You get because there's so many characters and so many moving parts. The book does feel rushed, and and Neil Stevenson has to dump a lot into just. Uh, you know, in these info dumps. And this is an example of that, that Eliza had this whole trip to London in February, 1688, where that's basically where she, she banged Daniel, it seems, or I guess it would have been February, 687 after the, maybe after the whole, um, no, sorry, February, uh, 88, it must've been 1688. Um, 
she had come and got, went to a Royal Society meeting, right? And really awed the people there. I, with mostly her beauty. Uh, it doesn't sound like she was able to say too much. But he finds, uh, he finds a letter. He's back at Gresham College after the scare at the Star Chamber. And there's a letter waiting for him from France. And it's one of Eliza's encoded letters. She uses the Leibniz cipher. And Daniel figures it out. He must have heard about it from her. So he goes to the I Ching. He figures out the, the code. He translates it. And he finds... Um, he starts to translate it. And the heart of the letter, we don't get much of it. We just get a line or two. But it says, I'm coming. So she's, she's going to visit uh, London again. And again, that's going to be all basically off screen. Um, it's just referred to in a later letter Eliza writes to, to DeVoe. The other thing we learned about Daniel in this section that's pretty key, uh, although maybe it's, again, something we would have liked to see developed a little bit more. It is kind of played with and then dumped eventually, and that is Daniel has a bladder stone. He has a bladder stone just like, just like a Peeps had and just like Wilkins thought he had. But he has it. And there's, we had some really weird scenes where he has to like try to pee and he has to kind of figure out the right angle to, to pee without the bladder stone blocking his, you know, the, the urine. Some gruesome stuff. And But he thinks he's going to be dying soon. So his he kind of becomes a figure sort of like Drake. But instead of the apocalypse now, it's like revolution is is, is going to be his moment. And he doesn't think he's going to live to see much past the overthrow of of James II and the restoration of a of a of a new type of balanced government with uh, with rights for dissenters and rights for uh, religious freedom or religious tolerance or whatever. So moving on, uh, we have this letter from Eliza to DeVoe, which mostly involves her her activities in in London about the formation of a bank. Uh, her interactions, basically her seduction of Daniel Waterhouse. I think she uses the word seduce. I think in the previous chapter with Daniel, we just get how much Eliza's in his head, but here she straight up says she, she seduced a this a natural philosopher in London or whatever. Um, so that's, and there's a little bit here about Lizaletta and her relationships with them um, too, even hinting at the adventures she has in the, um, with William the Orange, but not directly t saying it to to DeVoe. So we're coming to the end of this section of the of the book that I want to talk about, and that would be uh, uh, the Tower of London. So Daniel, so this is now summer and autumn of 1688. Some point after that adventure in the Star Chamber and getting this letter from Eliza, Daniel was thrown in the Tower of London. Uh, basically, at this point, officially, as a bit of a dissenter. It's nice. Also, he gets put in uh, the same chamber as Oldenburg was once put into. Um, and Daniel's preparing for death. He's got this bladder stone. And he's also convinced that Jeffries is just going to send some cat's paws in to, to murder him at some point. So he actually is worried about visitors coming. He does get some visitors that he does trust, though. I think, like, Roger Comstock visits. And we have the wonderful goodbye of sorts to Hook. Um, Hook visits. And it's it's really one of the most beautiful sections. Um, 
one of the most beautiful things that I think Daniel says in the entire series where they're basically talking and they both sort of admit Isaac Newton is a great and Principia Mathematica can't be outdone and he's going to overshadow all their natural philosophers and Daniel replies to him no you're wrong you're thinking about this the wrong way he says Leibniz has much to say on the subject of perception which I have but little understood until recently and you may love Leibniz or not, but consider, Newton has thought things that no man before has ever thought. A great accomplishment, to be sure. Perhaps the greatest achievement in any human mind has ever made. Very well. What does that say of Newton and his use? Why, that his mind is framed in such a way that it can outthink anyone else's? So all hail Isaac Newton. Let us give him his due and glorify and worship whatever generative force can frame such a mind. Now consider Hook. Hook has perceived things that no man before has perceived, ever perceived. What does it say of Hook in any of us? That Hook was framed in some special way? No, for you just look at Robert by your leave and you're stooped. You're, you are stooped, asthmatic, fitful, beset by aches and ills. Your eyes and ears are no better than those of men who have not perceived a thousandth part of what you have. Newton makes his discoveries in geometrical realms where our minds cannot go. He strolls in a wool garden filled with wonders to which he has the only key. But you, Hook, are cheek by jaw with all humanity in the streets of London. Anyone can look at the things you have looked at. But in those things, you see what no one else has. You are a millionth human to look at a spark, a flea, a raindrop, a moon, and the first to see it. For anyone to say that this is less remarkable than what Newton has done is to understand things in a howl and jejune way. It is like going to Shakespeare play and remembering only the sword fights. End quote. So, like, it's, it is sort of our goodbye to Hook as far as the story, and it's a great moment where Daniel simply explains that Newton is kind of beyond the pale. We can't meet him, but you, by taking just being a like everyone else on the planet, have looked at the world in new ways, obviously through a microscope. But he's just he's just looking at things and describing what he sees. But he's seen things that no one else has seen, which is more impressive than thinking what nobody is capable of thinking except people who are very very special so um so i think i think that's it with hook um he runs into a a, a sergeant the sergeant turns out to be bob shafto and daniels thinks he's going to be killed executed at any moment and it turns out he's not but daniel does say like or I think the sh sergeant, Bob Shafto, tells him, there's some names on here, like visitor on your visitor's list. And Daniel's like, I don't know those people. <laughs> so they must be the people that have been sent to, to, to murder him. And Daniel says, don't let these people in. Um, but he also gives him a letter. The letter is addressed to Grubendal, which is the old secretary of the Royal Society. Um, and it's, you know, this is, of course, where Oldenburg was in the... Oldenburg was the old secretary, but Grubendahl was his, you know, the name he used for correspondences. And so it's just this parallel between Oldenburg in the, in the tower and, and Daniel in the tower. And the letter's from Le um, Leibniz to Daniel. And he's kind of like, I didn't know where else to send this, so I sent it to Grubendahl. And basically this is Leibniz's response to Principia Mathematica which has been published and he's read and he says it's brilliant but it's wrong and 
And he goes through some kind of, he goes through some Descartes stuff, explaining why Descartes was wrong and kind of how he built on Descartes to, to think about things in a new way and how Newton's kind of falling into maybe some Cartesian traps of seeing things strictly as, as geometrical and then holding everything else to God. Um, he writes this, um, the quantity MV squared is scrupulously conserved by nature, but its conservation may in fact be considered a law of the universe, but it is outside geometry and excluded from the dome that Newton has built. It is another contingent non-geometrical truth one of many that have been discovered or will be by natural philosophers. Shall we then say, like Newton, that all such truths are made arbitrarily by God? Shall we seek rules as truths within the occult? For if God has laid these rules down arbitrarily, then they are occult by nature. To me, this notion is offensive. It seeks to cast God in the role of a capricious despot who desires to hide the truth from us. In some things, such as the Pythagorean theorem, God may not have had a choice when he created the world. In other things, such as the inverse square law of gravity he may have had choices but in such cases i like to believe he would have chosen wisely and according to some coherent plan that our minds insofar they are in god's image are capable of understanding um if you haven't been paying attention he he kind of lays it out here right right for you the con the contrast between leibniz and newton's approach to these to these problems um and of course leibniz was right um Wonderful stuff to just think about. And of course, Leibniz is known for this idea of the best possible universe, right? Which he sort of hints at here too. Maybe God had to make things a certain way, or this is the best that God could make it. This world is the best possible creation, right? Because a good God, this is kind of a solution to the problem of evil. I think it does come up in a later book directly, but it's, it's his, it's his um, theodicy. Had the best possible world. You've probably heard of it. Um, anyways, then we have a scene where, uh, basically Bob Shafto breaks him out of the Tower of London, but he breaks him out with, a by making a deal with him. And he says, like, you're going to help me with Upnor. I know you're, you're not a warrior. You're not going to fight him, but you have connections. You have rec name recognition. You have powers and I'm going to save your life, but you have to help me with the Earl of Upnor. So Bob is collecting his allies in a struggle against the Earl of Upnor. And later on, we're going to see how John Churchill gets involved in this. And it becomes a broader struggle for some people like John Churchill against occultism and for Daniel too, against the occult, against the, the alchemy and these things. And I suppose that, that we can, we can leave it there. Um, so again, a very, very busy book. A lot of things going on in it, dealing with commerce, dealing with uh, metaphysics, dealing with uh, the Leibniz-Newton dispute, dealing with uh, uh, the kind of foreshadowing the glorious revolution uh, and the politics on the continent. whole lot here. Um, and my complaints about this book, this third part of the Baroque cycle, still hold, I think. I just think it's so much going on in this text that... Stevenson is forced to kind of sip over a lot of things, interesting things that happen in the backdrop. It's, it's not the only time he does it, and he's done it many times in the book, but it's there's scenes you wish you could have seen, wish, you know, could have had on screen. I'm not just here talking about Eliza and Daniel. Um, because it, it happens later on in the book where he does that for a good purpose, to, to have a revelation at the end where he sort of tricks you. Maybe not tricking you, but, you know, he... You know, you're a bit fooled as a reader, at least for the first time you go through it. That we'll talk about in the next episode. 
But that, in that sense, it works. The stuff that's off screen is off screen for a reason inherent to the plot. Here, it's just, of course, at the same time, who needs a longer book, right? This is already 3,000 pages. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it, it, it works. Maybe this was the best possible way of telling the story without getting bogged down in this section of the book. All right, I guess that's it. So in the next episode, I'll finish up my look at Odalisk, um, which centers on Eliza's adventures in the Rhineland and her relationship with Rosignol, uh, Bonaventure Rosignol, the cheap cartographer. He's a real figure that is uh, somewhat fictionalized for the for this book, but he's based on a real character. That and then the Glorious Revolution. So that actually uh, might be a shorter episode. I don't know. I, I've been averaging around, I think, 50 minutes for these. I think that's a good pace to, to go. I mean, uh, I don't need to, I don't want to end up being longer than the original text, obviously. Um, so anyways, that's that's my thoughts on uh, the middle part of Odalisk by Neil Stevenson. Uh, if you read it, if you're reading along with me, let me know your thoughts about it by sending me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So I'll see you next time as I finish up uh, our look at not only Odalise, but it will be our finishing up the first volume. So it'll be one third of our way through this series uh, in terms of like, not, yeah, kind of page count. Um, the, the second volume is actually shorter than the first and third. So maybe a little bit more than one third of our way through this series. So anyways, uh, thanks for, for listening. I'll see you next time.